Queer Brood acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge Elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. Sovereignty was never ceded. Recording in progress. Welcome to Queer Brood, a show about queer families produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Anya Saravanan. On today's episode, I first speak to Tash, a proud Palawa woman. Tash talks about how her queerness, culture, family and kinship structures are all interconnected. Tash also speaks to me about her desire to have children and why it's so important for her future child to grow up rooted in culture. I then speak with Sasia Sidek, a proud trans woman of colour and co-founder of Trans Sisters United, about her journey to finding herself and the importance of chosen family. I'm Tash, I use she, her pronouns um, and I'm a proud Palawa woman. My family come from southeast Tasmania, so Palawina, Oyster Cove, which if you're not super familiar with Tasmania, um, that's kind of where you board the boat to go to Bruni Island. Yeah, beautiful. So most of your family yeah. is still there? Um, yeah, so I've got a sister in Perth, a brother in Toowoomba, and then otherwise, yeah, they're all in Tassie. Yeah, cool. Well, I thought maybe we'll start by talking about how or when did you discover you were queer or what was that process of discovering you were queer like? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I like, I feel like a lot of people have really cool stories. Like they watched Drew Barrymore in whatever that show is <laughs> and they were like, this is it. But I didn't really have that. I, um, a girl kissed me on a Ferris wheel and I had this like real, very quick kind of rapid turn of like confusion to realization, to panic, to, being really into it and then just needing to get off the ride and being super like what just happened. Um, so yeah, that was kind of how I, how I realized I, yeah, was queer, which was actually really nice. And it was like reflectively, I'm like, I should have totally known like we'd gone to this, um, this kind of fate thing. She won me like one of those giant stuffies and we shared very floss. Like I was totally being wooed in a way that Melbourne quiz do not match, if I'm honest. Um, and, yeah, I was totally oblivious. And then she kissed me and I was like, oh, yeah, this is this. is this." Um, so, yeah, that was how I realised. Yeah. How old were you when that happened? 17. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually really sweet. It's like a movie as well. Yeah, it was, it was really um, nice. And so she had, well, has still, um, queer mums. So she was like much more, um, and she'd grown up in Hobart, whereas I'd grown up in Devonport. And I think even though it's only about 300 kilometres, the cultural difference is really significant. And so for her, that was totally, for her, her um, she had already read a lot of queer theory and was really kind of aware of things that I totally was not. Um, but my older sister is also queer and her first girlfriend moved in with us um, when they were in high school. Yeah. Um, And I want to ask about the cultural differences that you talked about and where being queer fit into your family structure and and cultural structure. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. So my family, um, on my mom's side, we are First Nations, and on my dad's side, they're just like run-of-the-mill white Catholics. And so it definitely was like we – now that I am an, an adult and I'm pretty far removed and not super close to my um, immediate family back in Tasmania, I, well, there were so many queers in our community that we knew and that were our uncles and our aunts, and we just didn't know that um, that, that part about – them and I don't think that that was necessarily like our parents be not wanting that to be disclosed I think it was those people themselves and it not being super safe in northwest Tasmania to be openly queer um but my my mum is pretty liberal we are largely estranged um for various reasons but she didn't really kind of hold the parent parental role for a lot of my childhood um which meant that she could be a bit more because she wasn't really disciplining or doing any of the 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 structural parenting she was able to just be really like loving and supporting in other ways and she always kind of told us drink what you want smoke what you want shag who you want don't call me don't make it my problem so when we kind of later came out as queer she was like I told already told you that's fine and I was like, that's that's not exactly what we took from from that comment. But yeah, it was ne- it's never been an issue in my immediate family, and I appreciate how lucky I am for that. And I think in the Aboriginal community, at least my community, it has been a bit more challenging. Like some, um, there's some issues with like people who have changed their name as part of their kind of journey of of growing into who they really are they can't get a a new confirmation of aboriginality with their new name because circles of elders kind of control that and we also need that community control which that shouldn't be removed but also it gets a bit it can get a bit tricky into how into when you think about autonomy and for who in that regard but yeah there are some other sometimes I think queerness is used as like that's not actually the problem. Something else is the problem. But instead of naming that, they'll kind of point out the queerness. That's definitely something that's happened in um, with my elders. For example, I work in the public service, which is not super popular with my elders. And so, but instead of naming that, that that is the problem, um, they will raise, like, they will use my queerness and my identity in that regard and kind of that is what I will be slandered for Mm. when which is just really frustrating Mm. I mean that kind of makes sense to me as well because I think that's reflective in my family as well like there are lots of other underlying issues but then actually me being gay is what caused it all to crumble sort of yeah, that's how a lot yeah. of my family members make sense of that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's like there's there's you know various things that isolated could be ignored, or people would choose to not to kind of consider me as a whole person and not those particular parts of who I am. But when you stack them, it's it's just a bit too much. I think sometimes for for elders in particular, but that's not true for all of them. Some of them are are really like. I almost want to say more pragmatic in that they are looking at kind of, they do look at the bigger picture and just accept everything and are actually just really grateful for that. We're still one that we're still here and that we continue to survive and thrive despite everything that, that tried to prevent that. Um, 
but then they're the that kind of first group look at all we've overcome and then are like why would you make things harder why would you do this which is just not a helpful rhetoric and I had so our language um Polo-Akani has been reconstructed so it, it had been basically totally lost and now it's been really um what's the word, like homogenized, I think, from what was left from various parts of Tasmania. And it's been, and also some wax recordings and some kind of historical stuff that could be found. And from that with linguistics, ling, oh, I cannot say that word, linguists, is that it? Mm-hmm. Um, involved, they've been able to reconstruct what is, it is still pretty skeleton in terms of the language, but there, there's a dictionary. And so I had one elder who like found some words in that dictionary and, kind of tried to weaponize them and and like those words were like vagina and tongue um and tried to insult me with that and I was like I actually love that like thank you for teaching me that language and then that person's sister actually um had a pair of earrings with those words on them made for me and sent to me which was just a really lovely um and also I can wear them and nobody knows yeah what that what it says and if they ask me I just tell them it's, there's not a, a, an easy translation. So it's like the same tools that are used to discourage are also the same, what they use, what is used to be really supportive. Yeah, that was a roller coaster of an answer because I was sort of hoping that the elder would have found words, you know, that meant gay or queer or whatever, and then it sort of, yeah. that didn't happen. But then vagina and tongue, sure, more literal maybe, but serves the purpose. Yeah, I was like, I was almost like, you know more about queer yeah. culture than you want me to think you do. And that is interesting to me, but I can never say that to you. Yeah. Um, it was really a bizarre situation of events that actually resulted in a really lovely gift. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, that was a really roundabout way to say it's, it is really complex and yeah. they're kind of, the views aren't the same. And I often find in Aboriginal politics more broadly that I get, really frustrated when there's that expectation for First Nations people to all be in agreement for things that concern us. And I think that the rest of the nation and the world don't all get along and don't all have the same views on things. And so it it irks me when that expectation is put onto us that we should all want and progress the same things at the same times. Um, And so I can't like be hypocritical and sort of say that I want my own community to all just be on board very quickly without the work kind of being done to get them there but I'm also not prepared to do all that work on my own yeah Yeah, absolutely and talking about elders and not being able to say certain things to them because of you know the the respect and where where their position is in the bigger family structure and my understanding is that Aboriginal family and kinship structures like these are so different from a Western white idea of a nuclear family and families in general. So where do you as a queer person see yourself fitting into this family structure? I think that like when I like compare my family structure to like, like white families or the kind of families that were around me growing up, there's like often there is one person that kind of breaks the mold who is like the black sheep of the family. And there's a lot of like rhetoric around that. Whereas I think um, at least in my family, in my community, everyone kind of does their own thing and is knows who they are and where they're going um, in a way that is really difficult to explain. And so I 
like I do feel a sense of um, responsibility and not to my elders, but I feel more responsibility to the young ones coming up behind me and my nephews and my um, my cousins' children and those kind of the next generation. And I think that it is possible when there's different views on things to honour our elders and be respectful whilst also empowering my peers and, and those kind of younger than me t- to have more freedom. And, you know, we, I also think that sometimes pushing back on, on elders and challenging ideas in a really respectful, diplomatic and safe way is kinder than just allowing them to continue. Like I know that my elders, sometimes they say, often they say the wrong thing and they're quite critical or quite harmful, but that's never their intention. And they say those things from, from a place of love and care. And honestly, fear is the biggest thing. And, and you know, Aboriginal people are, I think, some of the most surveillance people, at least definitely in this country, if not kind of the world more broadly. And so the, the kind of understanding that some things, like I can have a public and a private life and maintain boundaries around those things, for myself in terms of my career and just my when it comes to my personal safety I don't think that kind of lands for them because that's not been their experience they've kind of everything they've done for for most of their lives has been monitored or surveillanced or at least they've had the fear or the knowledge that it very well could be mm-hmm. and so I think um I think I've gone really roundabout on this question as well I'm sorry I have a tendency to do that um but I think I, I don't really see myself as like a disruptor or anything in terms of my family unit because we all are and we're all very good at it. And sometimes that causes more tension um, amongst us. But I think I walk with the strength of, you know, 60 odd thousand years of people in front of me and throw behind me. And I don't, you know, hopefully just as many on the other side of that. And so it is like an enormous responsibility. But I also think that. We know that so much of the ideas that our elders have are Western values that have been pushed onto them and the role of the church still is so is so significant and it's sometimes elders aren't really prepared to actually sit in that and consider where these ideas come from and know that they, they didn't come from, you know, we didn't come up with these stories. Like there's a really great local elder and I won't, name or out her for her own privacy but she spoke at NADOC Pride this year I think she is a comedian like I think that that she's something that she actually pursues as well but she kind of spoke about you know if biblical stories were written by black fellas like we would have ate the snake it wouldn't have been like <laughs> what are we doing here it would have like that snake would have been in the fire pit shared um around like that it's just which I think really shows how and it was so refreshing to hear an elder ref- acknowledge like how far how far we kind of are from those values that have been really ingrained into our communities and that have kind of you know and there was there was a time not that long ago where our people had to like campaign and fight for the right to engage in those western structures like they had to fight for the right to marry i mean much like we did but i think it's there's so much trauma there and so much like, I can't take that on. It's not on me to undo that. But I, what is on me is, like, kind of being supportive and loving to the 
my community that are younger than me and whilst also being respectful and that's a really difficult tension not tension that's a really difficult like thing to navigate and it does like sometimes it goes well and sometimes I get chewed out we've spoken a little bit before about how you want children in your future and how it's important to you that the child is raised as an aboriginal child can you tell me a little bit more about that yeah, um, well, like I, I do really hope that I am able to have children. I do feel kind of a cultural responsibility to do that. And I, you know, I know that the conversation of bloodlines can be really damaging um, when white people talk about it. But I think in the context of First Nations family, like that is our survival. Um, and that is how we, we continue to love and live the way that we do. But yeah, it is really important to me that I if I have children and as I said I hope that I do that they are raised strong in culture and noting that if I have children it will be with someone who is not a man and that obviously means discussions about like DNA and eggs and kind of genetic material that that comes to be a child or an embryo at least it is important that I share that with my that I share a bloodline with my child because I don't no like the thing that brings the most richness to my life is my culture and my connection and the sense of of knowing who I am and kind of you know I don't always know where I'm going none of us do but I do know who I am and I know where where I've come from and who I've come from and that just is such a wonderful thing that I could never describe that in a podcast or or in in kind of a short um in, in a short form but it yeah it is really like I, I couldn't raise a non I could certainly love a non-indigenous child and raise them in that sense but I without sharing that that deep mm. kind of unspoken almost connection and I think we we know from the history of removals in this country um and and time in kind of out of home care that so many of us um that's touched so many families my own included we know the damage that that causes and that disconnection and so yeah it would just be totally out of the question for me to have a child that was not an aboriginal child from from my community yeah totally i mean it is a difficult thing to put into words but i think you did a great job there so thank you thank you yeah it's also a really difficult thing to raise on like i mean it's certainly not a first date conversation yeah but it is like a in the first year conversation and it is like it is a really difficult conversation but it also is really telling I think in terms of someone that I would be seeing about if if they understand that and if they don't then they probably don't understand me and the role that culture has in my life yeah and we spoke also a little bit about your chosen family. Like most queer people, yeah. you have your own group yeah. of people that you connect with. Can you tell me a little bit about your chosen family? Yeah, absolutely. I am so lucky um, with my chosen family. So one of the kind of closest people in my chosen family is Edith Shepherd, And I did like give her a heads up that I was going to name her in this. And she was very chuffed, which um, was quite sweet. But so Edie... I met her in my first couple of weeks of university and it was like somebody had given her a heads up that there was another queer young black fella at Monash who was kind of toying with student politics 
and at the time and so she kind of like she got my number somehow and really just like tried to contact me really intensely and at first I was like is this person coming on to me because this is a lot um but absolutely she was not she was just coming from like a deep a place of love and care and just like she knew that we were going to be chosen family before I even knew her name honestly um and you know like so that would have been what March April perhaps um and then by the end of May I was like at Mother's Day brunch with her and her mum like I call her auntie usually if I want something or I'm being you know (laughs) cheeky but she she is really you know my family and I'm so lucky to have that connection and she calls me out and in you know and I do her as well like we have yeah such a special relationship and it's like I am so lucky and there are lots of other people as well but she was kind of the first person that was really like I've got you and this is like we're just gonna figure everything out there are a few people that I have met and very quickly been like this person is going to be on my journey with me probably forever in some capacity and also you know Aboriginal people are transient people we move around we always have and I'm you know I'm pretty convinced that there's been in past lives there's been interaction there as well and there definitely will be moving forward but I also think that queer chosen family is like we know that it like sustains us and it keeps us here and that is like a really grim statement to make but it's also really really true um and I don't know that I'd still be in living in Melbourne if I hadn't connected with Edie and you know like there are lots of other people that I've met through Edie or that have kind of joined our queer family over the last six or seven years but um I won't name them without permission but yeah it's and when I talk about things like having children and kind of where I want to be in the next you know five to ten years like it is with her living 120 meters away when I think about what I would the support and guidance that I would need to kind of move forward I know that I am held and supported and that is yeah I'm so lucky that's so beautiful shout out to Edie (laughs) (laughs) thank you I just have one more question and that's um Mm -hmm. I guess a more general question do you have any advice for other queer first nations people out there who are starting to come into their queerness yeah I guess I do um and I think that 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 advice is would be that you know colonization in this country has been happening for upwards of 200 years and you know if you as you're coming into your own queerness that's not an overnight process that takes time and space and so your community and your elders and your family will also need time and space to grow into that and well not to grow into that but to to grow their understanding of what that means and also how you can be engaged in more than one community and and that that doesn't kind of change where you're at. And, you know, we know as First Nations people, we know where we came from. We know who we are. I think the sense of self that I have and that I share with other First Nations people is unparalleled, at least in my own observations of other people that I'm connected to. And I think that growing into queerness or understanding queerness doesn't doesn't alter that. It kind of just... what it does have an impact on is kind of where you're going and where you will be 
and I think maintaining where you've come from and who you are is a really important driving force in doing that. You're listening to Queer Brood, a show about queer family. On today's show, we spoke to Tash about her connection to her family and culture as a queer Palawa woman. In the second half of today's episode, I speak to Sasia Sidek, a proud trans woman of colour and co-founder of Trans Sisters United. Sasia reflects on her journey over the years and the importance of chosen family and shares some advice for other trans women of colour like herself. My name is Sasha Sidek. I'm a proud trans woman of colour from Singapore origin and living in here now, Melbourne. My pronouns are she, her. Um, what else? Uh, <laughs> I'm a, a co-founder of Trans Sisters United, Trans Pride March Melbourne, and I'm also a board member of uh, transfam.com.au. Uh, it's a resource to help trans women, or oh, I would say to fight against violence against trans women. And I'm that for me voice and Tracy R curing the air every Sunday at 3 to 4 p.m. <laughs> you're like, what else? And then you just have like <laughs> 10 other things. <laughs> Tell me about moving to Nam. How did that happen? Well, I came here for my internship. I came with my buddy. Uh, her name is Christine. So the both of us uh, was offered to do internship here. It's all through connections, um, of course. <laughs> we tried, but the both of us actually tried to do um, exchange students in Sydney while we were in college, but that didn't go through because Christine could, um, yeah, doing all the budgets and Christine didn't end up can't can't afford to go to Sydney. So we cancelled that um that idea and then end up got an offer here. So the both of us came here, did internship and then um I got offered the job and Christine didn't but Christine went back to Singapore and even got a better job than me. <laughs> but yeah. I was happy being here. Um the first thing that we came to do here, we went out to a queer nightclub called Market. And um, it's gone now, long gone on Commercial Road, South Yara. And oh my God, I mean, that is eye-opening for me. I mean, it, I feel like at home. I feel freedom. I feel like you can be who you are. I see a lot of drag queens everywhere and they're just not embarrassed, you know, like um, walking up, down the streets at 7 a.m. Mm. Yeah. So, I so thought, you oh knew well before you came here that you were queer. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I, I transitioned at, at the age of 16, very oh, early okay. age. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I transitioned in Singapore. So when I came here, I was already as a woman already. So, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I'm from Singapore too. I just can't imagine that process being quite straightforward. <laughs> oh, girl. Um, my family members, of course, I come from a Muslim background. <laughs> so um, some of them are quite religious as well, especially my grandparents. And, yeah, they, they didn't accept for who I am. They found out about my cross-dressing and my makeup and stuff. So at the age of 16, when I was waiting for my results, the final year result, and everybody was having fun, I got grounded, and then I decided to run away from home. Mm. So, and then the rest is history, I guess. Um, yeah, I never looked back. That was the day I started my independency um, at the age of uh, 16, late 16, so coming to 17. That's amazing. You're so young as well. <laughs> I guess it's amazing for at that time I was like, I wanna have fun, yeah. I wanna 
have fun with my friends, going out clubbing and for boys, you know, that was the priority at the time. Mm. And then I start and things get a bit tougher because I need to get a job. I need to find money because when I left home, it's just $6 in my pocket and that's it. So I was sleeping around with my friends place. So I thought I need a place. Um, I need, I need, I need my own place. So I start working and I got, I finally got a place on my own at the age of uh, 17. It was a shed house anyway. So, but money, money was really bad for me. So mm-hmm. all my, my salary will go to bills and rent. And then, um, yeah, until I met my mentor, uh, her name is Amy Tashiana. Have you heard of her? No, tell me more about Amy. Oh, okay. she's, a, she's a public figure. She's famous in Singapore. She was one of the top models in Singapore in the 90s too. So she's a trans woman. And um, yeah, she she was managing this club called Spartacus in Bodhi. Mm. And then it's like a drag queen club. And I went there and then I joined a dance competition with my uh, schoolmates. And then um, that's when she saw oh, this girl got talent. And then she started asking questions about me, uh, where I live. And she said, well, how come it's so expensive? I said, like, yeah, I don't know what's the going right with the apartments. At the time, I was staying in a HDB three-bedroom flat. Mm-hmm. So it was still, um, she thought it was a bit more expensive. So she said, when's your lease finished? So um, come and live with me. So that's when my life um, as a trans woman getting all the legal legalized hormones and you know um from uh makeup tips from social skills from everything she taught me from when i moved in with her and this was 10 years ago did you say no way this is 1998 wow i just (laughs) i can't quite wrap my head around it because i moved from singapore in 2012 so 10 years ago and okay. I think one of the things that I really struggled with was like finding community like myself. Like I, I'm a cis woman, but I knew from a very young age that I was queer, that I was different and all of that. And I knew there were other gay people around for sure, but it was so hush hush, you know, nobody really wanted to talk about it. There was no sort of community for me yeah. there. And I think, I mean, things have changed. I hope, uh, I think they have, but it's just so wild to me that in 1997, that all of this was happening. It was culture-wise, I think it hasn't changed much because we always have to be passable. We have to be like, you know, as a trans woman, we need to be passable. We need to be like very cis woman. You know, we can't sprung ourselves as being a trans woman. Uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's been a culture thing, uh, especially with the trans men. And when you said about, you know, being queer over there, I think it's only the bit... The only people that I think um, are a bit more open about their sexuality is the gay men there. Mm. So there's a lot of gay clubs. And they never said queer clubs. They always say gay clubs. There's a lot of gay men everywhere. You can just tell, you know, their sexuality. But as a queer woman, queer um, non-binary people and um, trans, we need to be very passable. Yeah. I don't know why, though. And then until I came here, it's like... I I just want to be queer. Now yeah. I'm just like, I don't care. I want to dress queer. I want to wear wig. I, and nobody going to judge me. But if I still, if I do that in Singapore, if you're, if you're not a drag queen, you still be judged by your peers. Mm. My mentor, Amy Tashena, is my second mother. Uh, she taught me everything, um, you know, and um, yeah, I owe a lot from her. She, she is a... It's hard to describe because at that time, I do not appreciate her as much because she gives tough love. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sometimes even if I cry, she don't even give an F. Um, she's like, cry, <laughs> whatever, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. So as uh, when I moved here, I was like, oh my God, if she didn't take me in, I probably wouldn't know how to do a lot of things. I mean, in Singapore, we are very spoiled. We have, you know, helpers um, and mom, usually family, you know, live with, live. it's a culture thing living with family as well. So that's why a lot of kids doesn't even leave a hand to do anything because everything is given. I was one of them. So when I came here, I appreciate Amy because she taught me a lot about being a woman. Yeah. Mm. And tell me a little bit about your organization, Trans Sisters United. Sure. Trans Sisters United was, um, there's three of us, Miss Catalina uh, and Rebecca Loveday. The three of us went to watch one of the movie about sister girls in TV islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, the Queer Film Festival. 2019, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think I was yeah. there too, actually, yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay, yeah. yeah. That, you know what movie I'm talking yes, about, right? Yeah, I do. So, and then all these girls were saying, oh, my God, I want to I wanna meet other trans, I want homos, blah, blah, blah. And then the three of us, I think we would sitting there, we would probably have the same thought. And then we got home, and then we have a group chat, and we start talking like, we need to do something. I mean, we need to reach out to these girls, you know, because why is there no help for them? So we, we want to know more. So that's how Trans Sisters United uh, come about. Um, I don't know why it has to be so dramatic that we need to have an organization. <laughs> it wasn't even my idea. It was the both of them. And then having Trans Sisters United, having a logo, I designed the logo and uh, we chose the color, what the color represents. And then... Um, while we were doing the project, there's a lot of, you know, hiccups. We didn't get any fundings. We tried we try to get funding. We can't get any. But we still want to do this. So, end up, me and Rebecca Loveday went to TV Island, are self-funded. Uh, we did raise a bit of money that is for, for because we want to do an event for uh, the, TV, uh, the the sister girls in TV Island. So, it's like a weekend with the sister girls. So, we had, like, a photo shoot. We have barbecue. And then, like, yarning and talk about things. Um, so, the whole weekend. And then, um, yeah, we raised a bit of money. Not much at all. Just to buy the barbecue meat and stuff from Darwin to bring to Tiwa Island. But most of it was self-funded by me and Rebecca. But, you know, it was an amazing experience. It's almost like a holiday for us. Because mm-hmm. for me, it's not... Uh, it's not a culture shock for me because I come from Singapore. And we already have... If you know Pulau Ubin. Have mm, you been to yeah, Pulau Ubin? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar like Pulau Ubin, as soon as I touched down, I was like, oh my God, this is like Pulau Ubin. So, you know, there's no culture shock for me. And the girls were so welcoming. The, actually, the whole village was so welcoming um, because we get to meet their family members, their neighbours, their friends at this pub and they were so welcoming to us. So that's how Trans Sisters United came about because we watched a movie and then we want to reach out to the sister girls. Mm. And then what have you done since then with the organisation? Okay, so, you know, of course, COVID uh, stopped us from doing a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we haven't, we, we still keep in touch with um, the sister girls in TV Islands. It's just that we haven't got any projects that we want to do with them yet. The, the last time that we actually tried to get them here for 
the indigenous global indigenous runway uh, fashion show. So I uh, was I spoke to Tinawaru. Tinawaru is the founder of um, the event, and then uh, we tried to raise money to get the girls here because they also are fashion designers too back in Tiwi Island. So they do like printing, screen printing is all handmade, and they make clothes. Um, yeah, so that's all true as well because. Funding didn't go through because mm-hmm. they focus more on other things like health and yeah, mostly health because it's during the COVID period time. Mm-hmm. So maybe hopefully next year, if Global Indigenous Runway back on again, I would love to put on the funding again and maybe ha- hopefully get the sister girls come here and showcase their yeah their amazing work because they really want to get out of the island mm-hmm. just to meet other trends on other states instead of Darwin. Darwin, there's not many. It's still them. So they want to go other states, like especially Melbourne, maybe get to know a lot more um, of the mainstream trans people here. Mm. Can you tell listeners, to people listening, where to find more details about your organisation and also if they want to donate money, how do they do that? Oh, yes, of course. You can look out for our social media on Facebook and also Instagram, Trans Sisters United. Um, there's a link there, link tree, and then you can also just type in, uh, uh, sorry, just click on that link tree, Trans Sisters United, and then there's a PayPal that you can donate from there. Amazing. And yeah. so this podcast that we're doing is heavily focused on what chosen family means to queer people. Mm. So queer people who, for whatever reason you know, haven't had connection with biological family, how they find and maintain connections that are like biological family. And you talked a lot about your second mother, Amy. So I just want to ask you more about that. I I feel like that's a very common theme amongst queer people, but particularly trans women who find, you know, mothers and sisters in these sorts of family structures. And I just want to ask you what that's like for trans women, what that particularly means to trans women and how important it is i think it's every person not only just trans women i think every person need to have uh, a mentor you know uh you need to choose a good mentor or your mentor choose you and it's either you want to accept it or not because having a mentor is someone that you can look up to and then you want to be that person as well so that's why a person that you can be inspired of um i mean saying that i have a second mind, my mother with me are good friends too even though we had the hiccups um in the beginning but she ended up come to her senses and end up accepting me for who I am being a woman because I'm the only child as well. So it's a bit hard for her uh, to accept at that time. Mm-hmm. There's no manual book or, you know, to Google at the time like, oh, my son has turned into a woman. What should I do? So having a chosen family is some, someone that you want to be inspired to or you want to be that someone. Like Amy has inspired me till today still. She's still doing amazing things even though she's already... I think over 60 now and she's still doing amazing job and I'm still so inspired by um, her. So yeah, I think it's really, really important. And coming here as well, I I was very skeptical to meet my own Singaporean Muslim people because I know how judgmental they can be. So it took me a while. I usually just meet, my most of my friends are trans women here uh, at that time, mostly are locals. And then when a, a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, she used to... Um, uh, she used to work in Singapore for my, the company that I was working with. She was a top model in Singapore. So I was a stylist in Singapore. So yeah, so she messaged me on Facebook and said, Sasha, are you in Melbourne? I said, yeah, I live here. Oh, we just moved here. The whole family moved here. So that's when I hang out with them. And then 
for Eid, Eid is Hari Raya. And then she invited me to her place. And I met a lot more Singaporeans, like all the cis straight people as well. And I was like, oh, fuck, what did I just uh, walk into? You know, this is the people that I want to avoid most of the time because they are so judgmental. And then, but you know what? It was so different. The experience was different. I think I just overthink a lot of things. And then people were so accepting. I don't know whether they knew at that time I was trans, but, you know, I'm a very loud person. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, so, um, and then I end up very, very close with these people now. Uh, they are considered family now here. So every time there's dinner parties, I'll be invited or I invite them over. So, yeah, and then I even had get to witness their first child born here as well. So mm-hmm. I was there. So, you know, it feels really good that these people are so nice to someone like me and you know what i did ask them this question i said like i mean like you know you're muslim some of you are very religious and um why uh why are you different from those people that i've experienced they said you're human you're fine i mean i don't care uh what choice of life you you pick but you know you didn't hurt anyone so mm-hmm. that's why we love you for who you are so oh my god i'm gonna cry yeah that's really sweet i feel like I mean, I sort of empathize with that experience of being so afraid that your own community won't accept you because it's just, no matter what, you look a certain way and you present a certain way and that's the community that you're going to be closest to. And that sort of rejection is so hard that you you do overthink and you think they're going to be yes. mean and nasty to you. So it's, it's yeah. a nice surprise when they're not. I think it's also because they moved here. Their mm. thinking is a bit different uh, from the time they live in Singapore. They did admit that if they're still living in Singapore, they probably won't be this open. Mm. But I guess, yeah, because sometimes when I go back to Singapore, some of them are still living in the box. Like, yeah, I can't, I, I just can't deal with the conversation over there anymore. Mm. There's a lot more work to be done. Mm. I mean, there's still no uh, law to protect trans women. You know, at the at, till today, um, you have no idea how many times I went to jail. Not jail, like cell, just simply from resisting. Because when they ask you, there's a lot of Interpol police, like without uniform, in the city area in Orchard Road. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I just there's one time I just came out from the movies, uh, with my girlfriends, and then this this plain clothes police came up to me and asked for my ID. Of course, my ID gonna say male. And then, yeah, I had to go into the van. And then they take me to the, to the cell and keep me for 24 hours, feed me like rubbish food. And that's it. There's no charges whatsoever. But I've been, it's been like that for so many years. Mm. And I don't know if it's still going, but yeah. And the problem is we can't fight for it because um, there's no law to protect us. Mm. Queer rights in Singapore is a whole other conversation. There's <laughs> just so much to do with yeah. it. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you took a chance and came here. And don't you think it's funny because Singapore is not even a religious country. Like, why? Well, it's not meant to be. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Absolutely. That's why people are so confused. Like, uh, oh, we thought it's a Muslim country. So, like, no, that's Malaysia. Singapore is not even a religious country. We we are multi-religion, multi-races, and mm. I, we're still living in the rocks. Yeah. I don't know why. I just have one more question for you, which is: sure. Do you have any advice for other? newly coming out trans women, trans women of colour in particular, what would you say to them? You know what? Be you and um, be proud for who you are. I think uh, you should wear confidence, not about how you look. You know, some, 
I just want to clarify this as well. A lot, some trans women can't afford to have surgeries, can't afford to take hormones, but that doesn't mean they are less than a woman. So you have to remember that if if you feel like a woman, you live like a woman, you are a woman. So it's all about womanhood. So do not feel like oh, um, you look certain way, you do not pass, and you think that uh you're not trans man, you're not. So like I said, uh, wear confidence, be who you are. You're gonna. You know what, being human, we, we're going to have a lot of hiccups in our lives. So, you know what, things will get better. We're not going to last. Um, things that are bad would, won't last forever. So, yeah, your head high and be who you are. Be fabulous. You've been listening to Queer Brood, a show about queer family. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversations with Tash and Sazia. If this episode brought up anything upsetting or triggering you'd like to talk about, you can call QLive on 1300 or visit their website at qlive.org.au where you can connect via web chat with someone between 3pm and midnight. And that is all for Queer Brew today. On our next episode, we will be discussing the topic of surrogacy, both in this country and overseas. See you next time. Queer Brood is produced and presented by a group of queer and trans broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne, with financial support from the city of Yarra here in Nam. The theme music for Queer Brood is produced by Darcy O'Connell. Queer Brood programs can be downloaded from 3cr.org.au and listened to as podcasts on your favourite podcast app. 